This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele. Um, hey, first of all, hi. First time we've been was, back together for three weeks. I, I was about to try to think of a funny way of saying that, but yeah, go with that. It's okay. Hi. Nice, <laughs> nice, to, nice, to, nice to be back together. It's, it's great. It's going well so far, I think. We've really kind of got this whole kind of thing clicking into into one seamless narrative. Hello. Uh, yeah, we're back. <laughs> But you guys uh, and, missed us. You know you guys, it. You guys really want to listen to this, don't you? You do. Um, they do. They uh, do they it's do. hot. I'll give you that. Guy gets to talk about the weather now forever, so he's feeling good about that. Yeah, I, I, we like to talk about it when it gets hot over here. Not this hot. It's getting a little bit uncomfortable, I have to say. Um, we are not in the uh, in the camp of having a great deal of air conditioning here in London, so it's getting a little bit warm. But uh, Alex came up with a question a little bit earlier on. Actually, it may not have been Alex. Somebody, somebody else on the team. It was not me. It was Dan. But go okay. ahead. I'll take credit. Uh, which is basically how hot is too hot. And I think you can apply that question today not only to the markets and, and the data, the economic data we're getting, but also to the weather. So I think it is a multi-purpose question of the day. And when you say how hot is too hot, I, I think we may have to start asking the question how cold is too cold in that... U.S. inflation expectations had a pretty big drop. Um, one-year inflation expectations now has a six-handle, three years ahead, falling to 3.2%. And I say that because Morgan Stanley Mike Wilson is also saying, look, could potentially falling inflation be bad for profits? And if it falls fast, are we going to be in a tough spot again? That's a question I don't think we're really asking yet, and I find that to be a little interesting as well. We should get an update on this. We're going to get University of Michigan data out mm, on it. Friday. It's basically, it's a similar survey. Um, there are nuances, of course, but it's a similar survey in terms of what consumers are now expecting. Now, it's heavily skewed towards gas prices, gasoline prices, petrol prices, which are coming down relatively rapidly at the moment. I also wonder as well whether this could ultimately end up having a political implication. Um, they would need to fall very fast, I think, for, for a meaningful mm-hmm. change in the midterms. But I think that just need, it just uh, the margin maybe needs to be on the radar as well. Anyway, um, the team is reunited, as Alex says. There are not two of us. There are three of us. Charlie Pellets here as well. Hi, thank you very much. And here's what's going on. We do have hot weather, and it's been a tough morning for a lot of people in North London with taps running dry. Families and businesses in North London lost their supply of water after a large pipe burst this morning, flooding streets and holding up traffic. Thames Water Utilities says six postcodes in the boroughs of Islington and Hackney had no or very low water supply. Now, Thames Water does say it stopped the leak and that the flood levels are received. Seating. The UK's major utilities are already facing criticism for the amount of water that leaks out of pipes. The Times says about 2.4 billion litres are lost through leaks every day, enough to meet the needs of roughly 16 million people. According to Shell's UK head of upstream, Simon Roddy, Britain needs to keep developing new oil and gas fields in the North Sea, even as it rolls out major offshore wind and carbon capture and storage projects across the country. Shell 
is planning to invest as much as 25 billion pounds in the UK's energy system over the next decade. And a London museum has agreed to return a collection of Benin bronzes looted in the late 19th century from what is now Nigeria as cultural institutions throughout Britain come under pressure to repatriate artifacts acquired during the colonial era. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. The Greeks are certainly paying a great deal of attention. The Elgin marbles front and centre out of the British Museum, though I will miss them were they to go, but I can understand why they should go. Um, that, that flood in North London was unbelievable. That's crazy. So have you seen the pictures? I have not. Twitter? So it basically it's like a river running down a, num- a number of streets in North London. Like oh a proper God. river as this, this huge pipe burst, just at the point at which we're all being told that London is about to run out of water and could be experiencing water rationing. Oh, my God. Now we know where it's all gone. That's, that's just, that's the last thing that anyone basically. wants to hear Into about. Absolutely. But it does go to our kind of our major theme this week here in Europe, which is which is what is happening on the weather front. Another massive heat wave coming through. Not as bad as July, but it's going to be on top of July, which I think is the significant bit here. Water levels in the Rhine continue to fall. We're getting very close to the key choke points where uh, we could see effectively the Rhine being closed. The French are now allowing nuclear power p- stations, five of them, I think, to pump out super hot water into their river systems. Uh, because those river systems uh, can take it or not. But basically, providing power is more important. Uh, and the uh, the Norwegians are having a few issues uh, when it comes to hydro as well. So it's all coming together very nicely here in Europe. Very nicely indeed. Rachel Morrison joins us now, as ever, to update us on what is happening here. Rachel, I... How big a shift is this from the French? How big, how important a shift are these waivers for these nuclear facilities? I think, as you said, it really shows that they are a bit worried about just how much capacity is offline. The limits that that EDF had warned at those five plants along um, the Rhone and Garonne rivers. So they, I mean, we're expecting some kind of environmental backlash. As you know, most of France does go on holiday in August. But this is sort of saying, yes, it's bad for the environment, for the fish, for the plants, but... You know, we need the electricity and we're going to let those plants run. So there is, it's, it's a temporary waiver until September. But I suppose they hope that the rivers have returned to normal by then because the supply situation um, on the nuclear side certainly won't have. Yeah. And also then you still have winter. It's not like all of a sudden September 11th, everything's great again, which is when supposedly the restrictions will come back. Um, so to to the Rhine level situation. Now, we've seen this before that you've had to shut because of low water. And I guess it's twofold. One, what makes this one so much worse? And I can imagine all the answers that you'd say. And two, like, why isn't there a backup, like a different kind of route or something to get the things? So the second question, there is, for some of the stations, the power stations that need to get coal up the Rhine, they can get it by rail. And some of the operators have said, we knew this would happen. We've got lots of stocks already ahead of this. But really, this year, stations are going to be burning coal when, you know, in the summer when normally they wouldn't be. Normally, we wouldn't be needing coal. But this year, because we're trying to use less gas, everybody's trying to put that gas into storage. We need coal and we're going to continue to need it into winter. So we need more than ever. And the stocks are being depleted quicker and they're not able to get more and there's huge problems with logistics particularly in germany getting coal from the ports 
along um, railways and however they need to get it. It's expensive. They got rid of a lot of infrastructure because they were closing stations. They were phasing out coal until the the war in Ukraine meant they had to reverse some of that and keep some of these coal stations alive when they had planned to, to shut them. So that's really the kind of surprise element of it, that they need extra coal and it's in places that they had previously not thought they would still be running. Where are we on gas storage? Gas storage is looking pretty good. Um, it is looking, uh, you know, about in line with average, but we've got to take all of these things in the context of, you know, a possible cutoff in gas supplies from Russia. So, it's, it's looking all right, but if that does happen, it becomes more difficult. And also, the storage that we need for winter assumes some flows continue. So even if we fill storage, if flows get cut, that's still a problem. It's not like once we get to full storage, everything's fine. You know, that still can be depleted quicker, sooner than than anybody thinks. So that's a good indicator, but it doesn't mean we're out of the woods. No, it does not. Uh, Rachel, thanks a lot. You are going to be a really busy person this week. Um, prepare to be on our show every day. Uh, Rachel Morrison uh, joining us from Bloomberg. And I got to say, like, it's really hot here, too. Like, I know that I'm, like, crying into the wind here, but it is, like, 96 degrees. It is insanely hot. You go outside and you're, like, taking a bath. So we're having our own problems, too. There are different shutdowns on our grid is getting stressed. I just want to throw that in there, just to be clear. Um, all right, coming up, we're going to hear from the Siemens CEO on the same kind of topic, also their outlook. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. And Guy Johnson is over in London. We are together yet again for small time only. Um, Okay, so let's get to the energy story here. So a crucial part of the energy story, obviously, is uh, the gas on Nord Stream 1 from Russia to Europe. Now, another part of that is getting a turbine fixed. And that's going to go through Siemens to Nord Stream, to Gazprom. Uh, Supposedly, it's in transit. It's been in transit for a while. In theory, that could help alleviate uh, some of the gas crunch issues. You can see me doing air quotes pretty much all throughout that sentence. Um, So Manus Cranny and Danny Berger caught up with the CEO of Siemens earlier, Christian Broch, and here's what they had to talk about. I'm very, very glad how resilient the GP business, so the business outside wind, right? I mean, we see a super strong order intake. We see that all the products across the board are needed for the energy transition. And also they have been resilient in this very difficult market environment. We have two factors which uh, make me not satisfied with the business performance. The one you mentioned already, uh, which is Siemens Gamesa, you see obviously that uh, they had uh, revised also their outlook for 22 uh, and post substantial losses. And the other piece is obviously we knew we had to do it, the restructuring of the Russia business. With regard to Russia, our target is to conclude everything in 2022 such that there is no negative impact in 2023. Uh, And that was one key driver now really to conclude everything. The one element is obviously not uh, remaining, which is Russia. Um, But wind will obviously be a turnaround case for a couple of years. Um, I think we're on the right track, um, but it's uh, a slow and painful exercise. 
And, and, and speaking of that, look, Siemens has certainly been at the center of some of the turbine drama happening when it comes to Nord Stream 1. Um, of course, it's been delayed that Russia is in part blaming uh, for the lower level of gas deliveries. What is the latest there? What is the update when it comes to that turbine and the flow of Russia gas? No, the situation is uh, roughly as last week. We're still in debate with a Russian customer in terms of the import papers. We have prepared everything from our side. Normally, it obviously also requires input from the customer side, from the receiving end. I always have to underline, if you look on the installation itself for compression of the gas, these are six trains installed. Five need to be operating Uh, At the moment, just one unit is running. And this unit, which is debated at the moment, is a spare unit, which was scheduled to be exchanged in the coming September. Um, So for me, it is not clear to really link the turbines with the gas flow uh, in a direct way. So we do not see really a technical reason at the moment. We are in an unprecedented environment. Europe is talking about energy, about nat gas rationing. What does that look like for you? Have you started to pull back? What does your disaster plan look like at the moment, Christian? First of all, you always have to keep in mind we are sitting on a record order backlog. We have a massive increase in order intake. So despite all the concerns in the world and in Europe, we do see that there is a heavy need for our products in this environment. We will need more transmission grids. We will need more highly efficient energy technology. So there's a lot of positive. Obviously, at the same time, we are trying to be very cost conscious. We are uh, very careful in terms of spendings. Um, but we also have to be aware we have to execute a record order backlog, which will help us also through most, most of 23. Um, and we still see a, quite a good filled pipeline for new projects coming. So if, in, if electricity industry is good for one thing, then in a, even in a crisis situation, we see a resilient and stable market environment at the moment. We have to be very careful. But in terms of order book and, and uh, pipeline of opportunity, It's a very good market at the moment still, despite all the discussions. That was the Siemens CEO speaking to uh, Daddy Berger and Manus Cranny a little bit earlier on today. Sounding quite positive, I thought, about the, the situation he finds himself in at the moment. Clearly, at the moment maybe just putting a brave face on things we don't know is the biggest problem here alex when it comes to the industrial story Mm -hmm. there is certainly an expectation that if energy prices stay at their current levels we are going to see industrial demand destruction have we seen it yet maybe not are we going to see it watch this space winter is coming the weather is important (laughs) bloomberg This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. If you think British politics is complicated right now, spare a thought for the Italians. (laughs) Basically, we now find ourselves in a situation where the country is heading towards a general election. This after Mario Draghi, Super Mario, formerly of the ECB, resigned as Prime Minister. It now looks as if those elections will be won by the uh, by the right wing, the very right wing, the Brothers of Italy. That's looking increasingly inevitable uh, after a coalition of parties in the centre of Italian politics, uh, which had put themselves together under one umbrella, decided that that wasn't going to work going into the election. You've also got the added uh, economic impulse of uh, what is happening with the gas crisis, hitting Italy very, very hard. 
Maybe Italy gets more money from Europe, maybe it doesn't get more money for Europe. Uh, the last Italian government, the Draghi government, was basically uh, in a position where it could be accepting a huge amount of money for Brussels uh, in terms of the next generation funding plan, which would have given it around 200 billion euros. You've then added on top of all of this, got Moody's coming out uh, on Friday uh, and putting Italy and its debt on negative watch it's a pretty toxic combination and you wonder where Italy is going next well let's try and answer that question now we're joined by Bloomberg's Tommaso Ebhardt uh, to give us a flavor of what the situation feels like there Tommaso let's start with the politics are we heading for a right-wing victory in Italy Ciao, buonasera from Italy. Uh, that's the most likely scenario. Obviously, we still have 50 days before election, so everything can change. Uh, but the latest polls are quite clear. The center-right uh, coalition is uh, well ahead of the center-left one. And after the weekend news, which showed that the centrist party led by Carlo Calenda essentially broke out the coalition with the Democrats, then the likelihood of a right win is even uh, higher. That's because the new Italian electoral law favor big coalition. Uh, about one-third of the seats uh, are decided uh, with um, a, a kind of a law that only the first one get a seat. So that means uh, uh, you get most likely center-right will get a big part of those seats. So, Tommaso, if that's the case... What happens to everything? Like, what happens to the economy? What happens to reforms? What happens to the money coming from the EU? I mean, that's not an easy question to answer. So, first of all, uh, I mean, you you mentioned Moody's at the beginning. Moody's is saying, you know, uncertainty uh, and, uh, you know, a new government without Draghi uh, might mean that uh, it's going to be less uh, sure that Italy will go ahead with reforms. That's clearly the case, uh, even if uh, we have the leader of the far-right party, Giorgia Meloni, who is uh, saying to uh, you know, everyone that uh, she will uh, respect the rules, she won't lose the money that Europe will give to Italy for its reform and, and for the funds after the COVID pandemic that will help to revamp uh, the economy. Clearly, uh, the uh, center-right coalition... Uh, might boost uh, uh, spending. Uh, uh, Salvini, the leader of the league, and uh, you know former Premier Silvio Berlusconi are saying we are going to cut taxes for everyone. So that uh, uh, may mean that uh, uh, the uh, Italian budget uh, law will be a bit difficult uh, uh, in the in the next month. But you know we are in an electoral campaign, so everyone is trying to uh, offer something to voters. How difficult will this winter be in Italy? I mean, uh, you know, first of all, we are a democracy election and Italian will decide who will run the country for the next uh, five years. Uh, um, there is this new electoral law which was reformed in the, in the last yep. couple of years which cut the numbers of lawmakers and this uh, is going to make uh, uh, more likely for who will win to get uh, a big majority. That means, uh, if the latest polls are right, that the center-right majority can have over 66% of the seats. And if that's the case, they have an urban-style majority. That means they could change the Constitution. That's why the Democrats... Tommaso, Tommaso, can they... 
Is this government going to be capable of dealing with a with a energy crisis that could rip through Italian industry and be incredibly problem problematic for citizens? So, uh, uh, Draghi's government uh, uh, did its homework quite well for the energy crisis. Italy is well positioned for next winter. Minister Cingolani with the ENI uh, chief Descalzi uh, under Draghi managed to diversify uh, the, um, uh, the energy uh, input in the country. The country next winter will be less reliable on Russian than uh, some of its uh, uh, peers like Germany. So Italy is probably uh, placed better than other European countries at the start of next winter than uh, uh, part of the, the, the center-right coalition was in the Draghi's government. So uh, you would not imagine them to destroy what Draghi has done in the past. Uh, still, uh, you know, there are a lot of question marks. Mm-hmm. But um, to wrap it up here, why are yields at 3% then? Uh, I mean... Uh, there, I mean, uh, first of all, there's just are, so much you, risk you, that we're talking we, about and so much downside. I mean, the risk is, yeah, I mean, the risk is clearly higher. OK, we now have a prime minister who is uh, somehow recognized to be the man who saved the euro currency as a ECB uh, leader a few years ago. Mario Draghi is uh, for international investor, one of the most respected figure in Europe. And, uh, you know, Italian lawmakers managed uh, to uh, uh, to let him uh, leave uh, before expected. So it's clearly uh, easy to understand why there is ner- nervousism among investors. Uh, so uh, going from Draghi to anyone else uh, clearly mm-hmm. increases the risk that Italy will be less stable and uh, will not maintain uh, the uh, reform that Draghi, that Draghi has tried to do and has tried to do. Then that this is this is you know a clear reason and you know yeah. the, the, what Moody has done what Moody did, uh, uh, did the Friday night is a clearly uh, answer to this so yeah. you, we are going to get into a less stable Tommaso? environment. Tommaso, we we, we got to leave it there. Tommaso Ebhardt, Milan Bureau Chief. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Yeah, that's uh, Moody's negative outlook there uh, for its credit rating. All right, coming up, we're going to turn a little bit to the U.S. Here, what is hot? What's too hot in the U.S.? This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. It is 5.30 uh, in London right now. I'm taking a look at U.S. markets, though. Honestly, it is really hard to find direction. It does feel like a wait and see till Wednesday. We do have some earnings that were trickling out here. Uh, S&P and NASDAQ losing some of its gains. You had that New York Fed one-year inflation expectation falling with a six-handle. Morgan Stanley Mike Mike Wilson saying that, look, you have falling inflation is actually going to be a more difficult problem uh, for equities and for operating margins than people think. Um, That's another reason why he's notoriously bearish uh, on stocks. Another couple things to learn learn about here, and Guy, who knew it? The meme stocks are still a thing. Bed Bath & Beyond is up like 42%. Why? No idea. You get GameStop, same kind of thing. AMC, same kind of thing. NVIDIA on the flip side. uh, We'll talk about that in a second, but that had a big hit to gross margins. And Palantir also got pummeled here, lowering its full-year forecast after a disappointing second quarter. So it's kind of a micro story, probably, as we bide time, tread water, until that CPI number at 830 uh, on Wednesday. That's a snapshot here in the U.S. Let's get some other top stories with Charlie Pellet. Hey, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Welcome back. 
back and here's what's going on. Norway is gearing up to limit power exports, an early sign of the test Europe's cross-border solidarity will face this winter as the energy crunch deepens. The Norwegian energy minister says refilling reservoirs will be prioritized over power production when levels fall below seasonal averages. The country is one of Europe's top exporters of electricity, sending about a fifth of its output to its neighbors. Aurora Energy Research says the UK will be among the nations most dependent on Norwegian exports and any limitations will raise already elevated prices and could force National Grid to utilize its strategic reserve of coal generation. Russia has told diplomats it is ready to welcome international monitors at a Ukrainian nuclear power plant, which the International Atomic Energy Agency said was at risk of a nuclear disaster after it was shelled last week. And the first crop cargo to depart Ukraine's newly opened grain ports is now floating in the Mediterranean Sea, searching for a new destination after losing its buyer. Ukraine's embassy in Beirut posted a picture of the vessel Rosonian said the cargo has been rejected by its final buyer in Lebanon because of a five-month delay in its delivery. Briefly, earnings news. The Danish brewer Carlsberg has raised its 2022 profit forecast after better beer sales in Asia and Europe offset higher material costs. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Uh, Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. Um, Guy, we just... But uh, one of our producers, I think, pointed out that Carlsberg, you know, if it's really hot, what are you going to do? Drink beer. Uh, yeah. I, it's all about the weather. That's what I'm saying. It, it, it's all about... Uh, and I want to point... the weather. The weather is important. Um, just to, just to like, put it in perspective here, it is currently 97 degrees Fahrenheit here. I'm not going to feel sorry for you. 36 You're, Celsius. You have air conditioning at home. Yeah. There yes. Yes. My bill is going to be insanely expensive, though. But that's, so that, but that's the story, isn't it? So actually, most of Europe does have air conditioning as well, just not the UK. But, um, but the current heat wave, not only are we short of energy, but we're trying to use more of it at the same time. Yep, 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 and yep. Imagine if you had an pretty... EV right now. You need to plug it in at the same time. So what's weird is, is that all of the big energy suppliers are giving super cheap rates to EV buyers if they, fill their car, if they charge their cars overnight, like, like 5p a kilowatt hour, like really super cheap, cheap energy. I was talking to a, hmm. a doctor friend of mine over the weekend. He's basically running his immersion heater. He's heating up all his water between midnight and 4am because he's been given this super cheap rate That's by the energy companies. Right. So, yeah, maybe having an EV does actually work. Maybe. Uh, yes, true, true. If you had batteries too, but but the idea is that you know the more yeah. stuff you plug in, the harder in it's going to get. It should become harder. Yeah. Um, okay. Guy and I also spoke to Bruce Richards of Marathon Asset Management. Good so segue. Th- uh, you know, I'll yeah. just go with it. It's Monday. Um, billions of dollars in asset under management. Um, we talked through a lot of the main topics of the day. That it's hot for sure, but we also talked about what kind of recessionary risk we're going to see, and if we get one, what does it look like? Does the Fed have to be more aggressive? Uh, how long does inflation last? Um, so we talked to him about all of that. Guy started with asking him about that recession question. So recession, that is the big question. And you know, when you look at the first quarter and second quarter, and you looked at negative growth, it was really about inventory buildup. And the NABR probably won't classify those recession because the 528,000 jobs that were created. But the real focus that we have right now in the markets, the technicals, is the yield curve. We've not seen the yield curve, twos, tens, inverted, currently 44 basis points, this inverted since 1980. 
So you can go back to the 20 recession, the 2008 recession, the 2001-2 recession, where the yield curve got to 42 basis points inverted during the dot-com bubble burst. But you haven't seen this level since you last had inflation roaring, and that was 1980. Mm -hmm. So go back to those charts and, and focus on that. So we're of the opinion that Powell is right. And Powell said at the last presser coming out of the Fed um, meeting two weeks ago, he said, you haven't felt it yet. And what he's referring to is financial conditions. So imagine from March of this year to September, which is a couple months from now, that the Fed, and imagine this from the beginning of the year, that the Fed actually moved 300 to 325 basis points. Just imagine that, because that's what's currently happening. And so we think Powell is right. Big picture, inflation will roll over. So it's currently 9.1% CPI. We'll get that news on Wednesday. PPI around 11% and change. We'll get that on Thursday. And we believe those numbers roll over. So as you start next year, you'll deal, we'll be dealing with four handles. Mm-hmm. But we think it'll be stubbornly high at like four and change. Right. And so the Fed that's going to move rates to 3.5% isn't going to allow rates then to ease. And the markets are expecting the Fed to ease sometime into next year as you start to move into a little bit more softening. Right. And we don't think that happens. We think because of inflation, they have to stay there. And so what's causing this summer rally? We call it FOMU, fear of miserably underperforming. Positioning's light, and the path of least resistance has been higher. And so that's what's happened over this last couple months is the market was oversold. That was Bruce Richards. Uh, Marathon Asset Management talking about what is happening in the economy, talking critically as well, Alex, about the market reaction to it. Because a lot of people are scratching their heads at the moment, trying to understand, given the macro backdrop, why stocks are doing what they're doing, why credit is performing so well. He's basically saying that that we are in a position where people are worried about underperforming and as a result of which are eager to get back into the market. And you do wonder whether ultimately the Fed needs to get us to the position where there's enough fear that people are going, you know what? I, I, I can't take that risk. Mm-hmm. And that is when financial conditions tighten. And that ultimately is maybe what the Fed is looking for. And he is picking away. He likes structured credit. Um, he was mentioning, uh, he talked about the high yield market. Maybe not quite yet. He's looking for defaults, but that that's pretty cheap uh, in relation. We've seen a lot of movement uh, potentially in the high yield market. So, you know, there are still opportunities uh, within that. But I, I think that the idea of like the data, and I mentioned this to him later on in the conversation, that the data what the Fed is saying, and then what investors are doing, that they're all a little bit different, and they don't seem to coincide. So the Fed's really worried still about inflation. The market's already looking for a Fed pivot, and the data's holding up really well. That's really confusing. <laughs> it is. I, I, genuinely, I think, if you, if, when you talk to investors at the moment and you ask them about the level of conviction, it ain't high. Nobody really knows what's going on. You were, you were joking about the fact the meme stocks are back a little earlier on. I, what's all that about? Clearly, there is still a desire to get back into the market. Clearly, there is unfinished business on that front, which tells you that you haven't had the shakeout yet. Mm-mm. And it's very rare for markets to bottom without that kind of shakeout. Well, because we've also been conditioned to get that Fed put in some way. Dovish pivot, Fed put, yep. however you phrase it, we're conditioned for that now. Absolutely. And, and is that going to come? Or do you need to see a higher period Mm -hmm. of tighter financial conditions in order to get inflation out of the system? A lot of unknowns right now. But I think the market is going to have a very bumpy ride trying to figure it out. This is Bluebird. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Welcome back. You're listening to the Cable Live on DAB Digital Radio. A little bit of surprise for Wall Street earlier on as giant chip producer NVIDIA came out and effectively pre-warned on quarterly revenue, saying that it's seeing a significant erosion of demand for high-end graphics cards. Now, these are used in a number of different things. One of the areas in which these cards are used in is gaming. A lot of the headlines I've read today say there's a slowdown in gaming, but it's not just gaming. Crypto is also part of the picture here as well. Now, NVIDIA is not the first one to warn. Intel has also effectively come out uh, and given the Wall Street a warning as well. Uh, maybe NVIDIA's was handled in a slightly better way. Uh, joining us now to discuss all of this, Mandeep Singh Bloomberg Int- from Bloomberg Intelligence. Mandeep, this is a shock. Should it have been a shock? Um, I, do, I don't interpret it as a shock per se, simply because uh, we knew from the Intel and AMD prints that uh, you know they were noticing weakness on the consumer side. And granted, they have more exposure to PCs, uh, and NVIDIA has more exposure to gaming and crypto. But I, I think anything to do with consumer spending on devices is taking a big hit. And that's what I think we are uh, seeing with NVIDIA's numbers as well. Is this the bottom? Well, so I I think we were waiting for those estimate cuts. So far, NVIDIA actually had upward revisions for the year. So that was a surprising element. I think there is probably more room to go down in terms of cuts. And uh, that could happen with more bad news coming in, whether it's from some other chip maker or a hardware maker. We don't know. But uh, probably uh, a downward cycle is about three to four quarters. That's what we have seen historically. And so you are likely to see probably one more round of cuts. Uh, But it's anybody's guess when that could happen. We talk about the fact that this is being ascribed to a gaming slowdown, but these cards are used a lot in the crypto industry as well. How big a part is that playing? Well, so crypto, uh, again, it's based on, you know, uh, the best estimates that we have from the industry folks. But uh, crypto was anywhere like 20 to 30 percent of NVIDIA's uh, gaming segment, and they were trying to diversify that more and more. So NVIDIA's gaming segment, just to put it in context, is about half of the company's revenue. And uh, data centers has been growing much faster because uh, it's a secular trend. Every cloud company is trying to move beyond CPUs into GPUs and AI and machine learning. So that trend is more powerful. But on the gaming side, crypto was much bigger Two years back, the company mm-hmm. has been diversifying more into uh, consumer devices so that it can lower its reliance on cryptos. And look, that's where NVIDIA really made a name for itself in terms of the use of GPUs in cryptos. And, and they uh, diversified beyond that. But so the point being that, you know, they have crypto exposure and the fact that one of the most early users of its GPUs, that segment has been hit so badly with this downturn will have a negative impact on NVIDIA's uh, chip demand. Mandy, we talked earlier on television about how just manufacturing chips like that cost is increasing, and that might not be going anywhere anytime soon. And I wonder, what do we need to rethink in terms of gross margins for this space, and then how you wind up valuing the stocks? 
Yeah, so that is a big question mark on NVIDIA's uh, on uh, just valuation multiple because right now NVIDIA trading at uh, 11 to 12 times sales versus Intel at, you know, two times sales and Qualcomm at three times sales makes you wonder what's so special about NVIDIA. And the thing that was special about NVIDIA was its gross margin of 67%. Uh, you know, Intel in its best days was around, you know, uh, 52 to 53% gross margin. So clearly, NVIDIA had the pricing power. It was reflected in its gross margin. And now it, that it guided down 20 percentage points makes you think what so, uh, you know, uh, weak about this downturn that mm -hmm. they had to guide down so much because in prior downturns, it's been 10 point compression. And I think that has to do with the fact, one, demand is obviously slowing down, yeah. but also they have to diversify their, uh, you know, fabrications and, and just their supply chain. Mandy, you got to leave it there. Great stuff. Mandy saying Bloomberg Intelligence, that stock down almost 8%. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It was the stunner overnight. I got to be honest. It really caught my eye. It was a jaw-dropping headline. Carlyle Group CEO Kyusong Lee stepping down. A huge changing of the guard less than a full five years after he took the helm that was supposed to cement the new generation for this private equity giant. Um, the stock was down uh, on the news. It was. It's a really confusing read as to the why this actually happened. And we care about the why because it's going to tell us about who's going to run the shop next and also it's going to tell us about other private equity firms. So Shanali Bassett, who I'm pretty sure has not actually slept today, joins me in the studio. Um, Shanali, we've had what? I don't know. Let's call it 15 hours to digest this here. What's the biggest question that everyone's kind of chattering about now on the street because of this? Why now? This was somebody who was bought in and he kind of had a golden platter as he rose up. He was able to effectively navigate a very difficult situation. This is a firm in which the founders still own more than a fourth of the firm. And you have somebody who had spent a lot of his career at a different firm, Warburg Pincus, come into Carlisle and really make a name as an operator. But he made a lot of decisions that seemed to ruffle a lot of feathers, both internally and among the founders. For a while, for a long time, he was able to, again, effectively navigate that to the point that he and his co-CEO were ensnared in a power struggle a couple of years ago, and he went out. <laughs> so why now? Uh, now the questions remain around who's next. So this is a firm where uh, Kyusung Lee, again, and five-year employment agreement coming up, contract dispute with the founders, stepping down before that contract agreement is over. So the interim CEO is the former CEO, co-CEO of Carlisle, a founder himself. They are going to be setting up a team and uh, hiring an executive search firm to look for somebody new to join this firm. Now the question is, if they were to bring somebody else in from the outside, will they hit some of those same roadblocks that Kyusong Lee faced? That is a big question that's kind of looming out there in the market. Is there a performance issue here? Is that part of the problem? Uh, what issue? Sorry, Guy? Performance. I, how's the firm doing? That's a great question, because and one that's asked perennially and one that's fought about perennially, too. On one hand, Kyusung Lee made a lot of really landmark decisions, Guy. He was the one, uh, under him, Carlisle moved to a one-share, one-vote structure. That was a game-changer in the entire industry, and almost everybody followed. He was also one of the key 
people to really push for the diversification of revenues and pushing into credit in a bigger way and insurance. Again, something you saw a lot of the rivals do in large form. The credit business now had huge performance recently. It doubled assets in six months. That's but huge. It's huge. It is. But the stock has trailed. The stock has trailed meaningfully. In the five years, uh, it, even though it rose more than 60%, Carlyle rose more than 150% in that time. Uh, KKR, sorry, rose 150% in that time frame. Blackstone rose more than 200%. Why, th- this is a deeper question, but why is it so hard for someone new to come in and not have a founder run a private equity firm, considering that these guys are so radically different from what the firm started out to be? So Carlisle is a special egg because Carlisle had its roots in Washington, D.C. They didn't even really start on Wall Street. They also have a much bigger private equity firm. A lot of these other firms are called private equity firms, but really they have big real estate footprints like Blackstone or Apollo is much bigger in credit than it ever is in private equity right now. So it's Carlisle has more employees at the portfolio companies of its firms than any other firm out there. Mm -hmm. So it is a true private equity firm. And they've also really shepherded a lot of the ESG initiatives across the entire industry. They had a initiative with Cowpers, for example, last year, the largest U.S. pension fund in which they convinced the entire industry, the two bodies, to disclose granular information about environmental, social, and governance issues. So, again, pioneer in the industry in many ways still is. But how do they then mold into these other areas that make these private asset giants what they are? Credit, real estate, infrastructure, sometimes hedge funds. Very difficult for these firms to pivot. Isn't it ironic that these are the companies that are meant to be really good at kind of management changes and pivots and changes of direction? (laughs) Isn't there some sort of irony in all of this? Uh, Absolutely. Especially because they're owning so many companies and governance is is key here in so many ways. The whole thing. Absolutely. (laughs) But, you know, it's funny. Somebody asked me, they're like, Carlisle is like $13 billion in market cap. You know, why do investors care? And I'm like, well, if you're a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund or really anyone that manages your money with any of these investment firms, you care. <laughs> and you but care. But doesn't everyone own private equity at this point? Because everyone wanted to diversify. So like all these guys, like you mentioned CalPERS, like all these yeah. guys now are going to be owning some of these shares. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me back to, you know, this office of the CEO that's mm-hmm. at Carlisle. I think that's a really interesting office to watch. Is any of those executives, are any of these executives eligible to be the CEO themselves? Uh, because some of them run really large businesses. Mm-hmm. The former, the person who runs credit, for example, is former CPPIB, worked at a large investor himself, and now runs a business that is very fast growing. Um, there's a woman who runs most of the private equity businesses. Is she a candidate? They, these are both internal candidates, potentially, that could be really interesting, or do they have to look from the outside uh, to really help this firm? kind of meet mm. the expectations of public investors. Oh, you have to wonder, like, who would want that job at this point? Like, who would want to come from the outside? It's easy for me to sit here and report on it. Let me tell yeah. you that. I think it's hard. Uh, to. It, there's a very few... There's a very small list of candidates that can take over any of these firms. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see these positions so highly talked about and the transitions be very difficult everywhere you look. Super fun. I love that headline. It was a real center. Shanali, thank you so very much. We appreciate it. I know it's been a quite a long Monday for you. Shanali Basic uh, joining us there from Bloomberg. Um, all right, Guy, what are you watching for tomorrow? What's your thing? Tomorrow's going to be another quiet one, I think. 
I, I genuinely, genuinely think that basically the back end of the week looks really busy. Um, Kelly Lyons um, said it really well earlier on. Like, why are we here? Why didn't we all just turn up on Wednesday, wait for the US CPI data to come out, and then we could all kind of Do figure some out stuff where and ultimately then... we're going to go? Yeah, it kind of does feel a little bit like this that we're marking time. It does. I do think there's a lot of Fed speak that we're going to want to pay attention to. There are some data that we're going to we're going to watch, and the corporate earnings season is going to continue. But the main event comes Wednesday. Also, let's be honest, CPI. it's like August. Volume super it, it, it's light. It's not like August. It is actually August. It, it is. It is indeed August. Uh, July is a bit <laughs> like August, but but, but August August. is actually August. Meaning that volume super light over in Europe. Here we're okay in terms of volume, but there are going to be some people on vacation. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I have to say, there's quite a lot of Americans over here at the moment. I don't doubt it. Point that one out. This is Bloomberg.